You're listening to audio from Praxis Church Kelowna. Praxis is a new church plant that exists to follow Jesus and make him known. If you're interested in finding out more or joining us in person, go to praxischurch.ca. Our reading this morning comes from Jeremiah 17. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness, in an uninhabited salt land. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth, for they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Yeah, go ahead, take your seats. If I haven't had a chance to meet you, my name is Josh, the pastor here. Big warm welcome to you. First time guests and visitors, honored that you're here with us. Go ahead, open your Bibles up to Jeremiah 17, chapter 17. If you're wondering where Jeremiah is, go to Matthew, first book of the New Testament, and then just simply go 16 books to the left. (laughs) Um, Yeah, let me open this in a word prayer. (laughs) Father, um, I'm so thankful for this season and all that we're we're celebrating and remembering and just the rich theology of these songs we've been singing that you, the God of the universe, incarnated in pursuit of your people. So much reason to sing. As we open your word this morning, we pray, Holy Spirit, you would um, unpack it in our hearts and that the glory of this, um, this month, this season, this event that we're celebrating would, would fill our minds that we would be more in awe of you. We pray in your great name, Jesus. Amen. So yes, uh, the Christmas season has officially begun. Costco selling eggnog. And um, so we started singing some songs this morning. Uh, December's here. Probably some of you, you've begun setting up decorations, listening to your favorite Christmas albums. On our way back from the coast this weekend, my wife was um, harvesting branches from the trees. And now my house has been... The transformation into a forest has started. Um, I I know Daryl, if you know Daryl, I think he put 30,000 lights up on his property this week. 30,000, that's an actual number. Um, I think he's rerouting air traffic. I don't know if he has a Fortis tower or how he's pulling it off. Um, But yeah, Christmas has begun, and, and probably many of the traditions and celebrations that you have have begun as a church. We are now going to spend our remaining weeks in, of 2023 looking at Advent and, and celebrating um, this season of Advent. But before we dive into this series this morning, I, I wanted to take some time to talk not just about what we're celebrating in Advent, but why. Why? Because, um, if this is news to some, Some people question, why do Christians celebrate Christmas? Should we celebrate Christmas? Um, There's not universal agreement around this. In in a room this size, I know there's some that have come from different backgrounds, 
traditions, and, and this is a, a question that many are asking, including the culture, looking and going, is this something Christians should be doing? And really, the, the debate, the, the questioning of that is centered around three core questions. I put them up on the screen in case these are new to you. One, they, the argument would be, we don't know when Jesus was born. Many have argued December 25th might not even be close to when Jesus was born. Some will, will cite things like seasonal climate going, would shepherds really be in that region at this time? Others have looked and went, this, there wasn't a Roman census at this time. Kind of their argument, scripture isn't clear on when Jesus was born. In fact, the Eastern Orthodox Church, who um, the Catholic and Catholics and Orthodox Church at one point split, and then we've come, Protestants have come off of the Catholics, but that Eastern tradition, they celebrated in January. So there is some, when was this? Um, there's a little bit of unknownness around this, some would say. So why are we celebrating on December 25th? The other argument would be, man, we don't see this commanded in Scripture anywhere. There's no recorded instances in the Bible of people celebrating Christmas, the birth of Christ. So should we? I mean, some people would even go, it's not just that the scripture is silent on this. There's other scriptures in the Bible that would seem to say we shouldn't celebrate this. There's a, a number that people will cite. I put probably the most famous one up on the screen, Jeremiah chapter 10. We read there, this is what the Lord says. Don't learn the ways of the nations or be terrified by the signs of the heavens for the customs of the people are worthless. This notably, they cut down a tree from the forest. They adorn it with silver and gold and fasten it with hammer and nails so that it won't totter. There's a few other verses as well people will go to and say, well, see, this isn't something Christians should be doing. And, I mean, this verse kind of segues into the third reason many would say we shouldn't, is that it, there appears to be a pagan connection. Many have pointed out similarities between um, Christmas traditions and many ancient pagan practices, bells, Trees, holly, yule logs, gift giving, the decorating of one's home, they would argue this has, uh, um, paganism is its origin. Um, they've argued it's you know, just a repackaged version of the pagan practice of yule or the Roman practice of Saturnalia, both of which happened right around December 25th. So the argument goes these are just kind of repackaged pagan solar festivals that Christianity has been applied on top of. Um, really, honestly, this is the same argument many would cite for why Christians shouldn't celebrate Halloween. It has a pagan origin, so Christians shouldn't touch it. It's the same argument. Um, and if you're interested in that one, I, I put a post up online addressing, I think, some of the misconceptions around the origins of Halloween a couple weeks or a couple months ago now. Ooh. So um, you can go check that out. But people will cite this here. Anyone heard these arguments before? Some? Anyone? This is new? <clears throat> there is many people, and, and within our own congregation, there's people who've come to faith in, in, um, in, Christ, in Christ out of Jehovah's Witness movement, come to believe Christ is God. There's people, many people in our congregation from a Seventh-day Adventist background um, these would be questions they would be wrestling with. Um, many in this congregation who come from Torahism or Messianic Judaism, these are very real wrestles. So I'm just acknowledging there is people here who are wrestling through these questions. And I want to take a minute to address some of these just before we kick off this Christmas season. I've wrestled with these a lot. 
I had some background in a, in a Messianic Jewish church. And as a kid, I was, my family was Jehovah's Witnesses. And so some of this has been a wrestle over the years. I've wrestled with, hey, why does the church spend one-tenth of the year on Christmas and like a week and a half on the Easter and Passover celebrations, which is clearly the more historic of the two? I've wrestled with this and these, these questions and some others, but with regards to the three up on the screen, maybe you could just leave those up and, and I'll address them as I go through. This first one, the argument that Jesus wasn't born on December 25th, that we can't be certain when he was born, um, that's, we, that's agreed upon. The scripture doesn't state a day, but there was an early church father born about 120 years after Jesus died by the name of Tertullian. Tertullian went back, he looked through some records, and, and based off of when the Passover was, which is when Jesus died, he determined that Jesus was um, crucified on March 25th. And this is why that's important, because Christian history states that Jesus was crucified on the same day as Epiphany, the day that the angel appeared to Mary and said that she was going to give birth nine months later. And so then people have done that nine-month math and went March 25th forward, nine months, is December 25th. And so from about 120, 150 after Christ, the church was practicing this date based off of cold, hard calendar facts. Second, this argument that it's a man-made holiday not found in the Bible. I'll just say this. Um, there's lots of holidays that we don't see in the Bible that we celebrate. Thanksgiving, anyone celebrate that? That's not in the Bible. Birthdays, anyone celebrate those? Those aren't in the Bible, that, that practice. And that's why some wouldn't practice the celebration of birthdays, like Jehovah's Witnesses or things. Um, other ones, stat holidays aren't in the Bible. Neither is driving cars. Okay, but we do these things. Many will take the scripture's silence to kind of be the same as a damnation of the topic, but if you're going to play that way, I would just call you to be consistent and talk, stop taking stats and driving cars. Yes, Christmas is a holiday that we don't see in the Bible, but the Bible doesn't say anywhere we're only allowed to celebrate holidays that are written in the scriptures. This, okay, the argument that you can't celebrate a man-made holiday is quite ironically a man-made rule. That's, that's you're making up rules to get to that point. And I'll give you an example. In John 10, Jesus celebrates what was referred to as the Feast of Dedication. Today we call that, anyone? Hanukkah. Hanukkah. So that was a man-made celebration the Jews created after um, they ousted, they, they, they had a military victory and won back the temple. So then they began this, this festival, which is now called Hanukkah. We see Jesus celebrating that in the Bible. That, that was a man-made holiday. Hanukkah, a man-made holiday. And, and I would say Christmas, which was specifically created to commemorate and remember the incarnation of God in flesh, has probably got a little bit more to celebrate than the fact that a temple was won back in a military victory. So the third thing, isn't this just some repackaged pagan festival? Well, the earliest records don't suggest that, that Christmas was a repackaged pagan holiday. In fact, the records from the early two to three hundreds show that this was a date chosen by the church. 
the, the notion that Jesus' birth celebration was intentionally scheduled to kind of coincide with these pagan festivals and repurpose them, that doesn't actually, that argument doesn't show up until the 12th century. So 1,200 years later, people start saying, you did it for this reason. No, actually, when this was pointed out, Christians at the time, they believed this was a coincidence, but a providential one, meaning that they believed it was natural proof that God had selected Jesus over these false pagan gods, which is kind of what we just sang in that last song. He rules the world with, what's the line, Cole? Truth and grace, okay? And this was the line I was thinking of. And he makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness. He makes them prove. This is what they were thinking. Ha ha. Yeah, okay, so you celebrate something on December 25th. We worship the true God of the universe. Here's an example. The festival of Saturnalia that the Romans celebrated, it was about honoring the gods through gifts and sacrifices during the winter sowing season with the hope that it would ensure a bountiful harvest in the following year. But Christians didn't believe it was these lesser gods, these deities that ensured this, but rather it was Jesus who the scripture says upholds the universe with the word of his power. And so these gifts, they didn't offer them to these pagan deities. They offered them to Jesus because they recognized him as the one upholding the universe by the word of his power who commands the seasons of who literally atom, atomic bonds are being held together by. The pagan festival of Yule. Um, By the way, pagan, that just means country dweller. Like farmers, okay. So the the farmer tradition of Yule, they would incorporate these seasonal elements because they they lived in nature. They were deeply connected to nature and seasons and weather, and so they would use trees and bells and candles and things like this for their celebration. But when Christians took these, they they weren't bowing to the pagan gods. They were actually taking things that were being used wrongly and using them in a right way. Why? Because Psalm 24 says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Everything in it is his. There's nothing pagan and then some things that are Christian. It's all God's. This is why Solomon took things into the temple from pagan nations, because it was all God's. There's nothing that isn't. And even if worshipers of other religions would claim ownership of it or have even used it for their pagan purposes, they're wrongly using it. And and we don't use things the same way as those who don't worship God. We use them differently. We don't avoid using them because other people have used them incorrectly. We use them correctly. People use all sorts of things God has made incorrectly. That doesn't mean we stop using them. It means that we use them correctly to his glory. So people will try to draw lines between Yule and Saturnalia and Christmas. But while, you know, other, the Romans, the pagans, they would gather to sing songs and give presents and have feasts and do all of this, they weren't doing it to Jesus. Pagans weren't celebrating the birth of Christ. That's what Christians are doing. And so those are the three arguments. There's some of my thoughts around it. I want to give us three reasons for celebrating Christmas. Three reasons why we take a month and we celebrate. Though I think we should spend more time on Easter, to be fair. Maybe this year we'll do like an eight-week Easter series. But three reasons I believe we should celebrate Christmas. Cole's on board. One, Christmas is the reminder that God's promises come true. If you've been with us throughout this series on Genesis, which we've spent the whole year in up until now, 
God promised to Adam and Eve right from the start, right in Genesis 3, that he was going to send a snake crusher, a coming Messiah who would defeat, defeat Satan and sin once and for all. He promised that, and, and this is what Christmas is a celebration of, that that promise came true. 2 Corinthians 1.20, I've got it up on the screen, it's, we read this, all of God's promises have been fulfilled in Christ with the resounding yes. They've all been fulfilled. Second reason Christmas is worth celebrating is the incarnation of Christ is worth celebrating. God became flesh. That should blow our mind. I mean, I, I celebrate my kids' birthdays, whether you agree with birthdays or not. I, I like celebrating because these kids came into my life and transformed it. How much more true is that of the God of the universe incarnating and having a birthday? Third reason I believe we should celebrate Christmas is because Jesus came to redeem us. Matthew tells us, the angel came to Mary and said, you'll give him his name, you'll give, um, pardon me, you will, shall name him Jesus because he came to save his people from his, their sins. Jesus incarnated, he became flesh in order to save sinners. And so First Peter says this, you know, it's not with perishable things such as silver and gold that you were redeemed. He didn't pay for us with the currency, but with his precious blood, a lamb without blemish or defect. He came to redeem us. God is in the business of redeeming pagans for his glory. That's the truth. You and I are wicked, lost pagans who Jesus came in pursuit of to save. God is in the business of saving, of redeeming pagans for his glory, and these redeemed people need to be about the business of redeeming all things for his glory because they're all his. And this is the third and final reason. I think we need to celebrate Christmas, and we should celebrate every holiday, and we should take it back because everything is the Lord's. We, we tend to buy into this argument that there's, Sacred things and there's secular things. And that's just garbage. There is no sacred secular divide. It's all God's. Again, Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord, is the Lord's, pardon me, and everything in it. And we, his redeemed people, are to be people who are about the business of redeeming all things for his glory. Why? Because gee, that's what Jesus is doing. And as we seek to redeem all things and restore them back to proper worship to him... That is how his kingdom comes. We're bringing his kingdom to bear. We're turning false practices back into right ones. This is my conviction. This is why I think we should be celebrating Christmas. And I, I know maybe some of you disagree with me. That's okay. I'm, I'm putting my cards on the table right now, though. And then to those who disagree with me, I'll point us back to Romans 14, which says this. <clears throat> one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day, observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. Well, the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to the Lord. And so, based on this verse, we have the freedom to designate any day, including Christmas, as a day de dedicated to the Lord. And I would argue uh, Christmas provides believers with a significant opportunity to to uplift Christ amidst a culture who, who I think has lost the meaning of what this holiday is. We live in an era of very two very different Christmases being practiced in our culture. 
one which is not centered around the God of the universe incarnating to save his people. Instead, it's centered around consumerism. This is not how we should practice it as God's people. We should redeem back this consumer holiday and, and turn it back to what it was made for, honoring the God who incarnated. So this is what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about um, what Christ brought in his advent. The, and Chris, uh, the advent, um, four weeks of advent are traditionally centered around four things, hope, joy, peace, and love. Um, this morning, I want to use the remainder of our time to talk about hope. And, and I know a couple are like, that was your intro? Yeah. Yeah, that was my intro, so saddle up. Um, advent is a church holiday that's been celebrated um, for a very long time. Uh, this word advent comes from the Latin word adventus, which means coming or arrival. And so advent celebrates for four weeks, the four things that arrived with Christ, hope, joy, peace, and love. We're going to look this morning, as I said, on how Christ brought us hope and how it took the God of the universe incarnating for mankind to have hope. Now, you might say, and I believe in, I don't believe in Jesus, and I have hope. That, it's true. Everyone is hoping in something. Every single person the problem is with what we are looking to for hope. Everyone's looking to something for hope. It's just, is, is, is it a good place? Now, let's just talk hope for a sec. I put the definition up so we know what we're talking about because there's a bit of nebulousness around this. Um, if you remember the, um, the Obama election in 08, his whole campaign was around hope. But it's like, hope in What? What does this mean? And it was pretty nebulous. And so just to stick to the dictionary definition, hope, it, it means to desire with expectation of obtainment or fulfillment. Hope is waiting. It's, it's desiring for something and expecting it to fulfill. That's what hope is. And there is a, a thousand different places that, and things that we'll look to for hope but they all kind of cluster together, if you peel back the layers enough, under three core, core places, three places we look for hope. The first is comfort. Comfort, um, commendation, I'll get into that in a minute, and control. And the, the, you could use some different language for these. You can, you can think of these in different ways. I would say we all probably do all three, but we probably have our favorite pet. So I'll, I'll unpack what I mean by each of these. Um, we're, we, we all, we look for hope and comfort, meaning that we're people who, you know, who believe that comforts will bring us fulfillment. And when I get that house, I'll be fulfilled. If you're like me, okay, I've thought that a lot. And I, it has to fulfill me because I'm so unfulfilled with the house I presently have. <laughs> if I had that car, I would be fulfilled. It has to because my, my current car doesn't fulfill me very much. If I could dress like that, if I could take vacations in that place, we're looking for hope in a variety of different areas. We use a ton of language around this. Often in church circles, this will be called idols, idols of the heart, um, the, the things we look to. Um, he idolizes cars. He idolizes money, whatever it is. He, he idolizes travel. But really, that clusters together under this, this heading of, of comfort, 
How do you know that you're looking to comfort for your hope? Well, when your comforts are removed, you feel hopeless or angry or frustrated, disrupted. And this is the truth. If, if our hope is in comfort, our hope's not very secure because these things get taken. You can get sick. You can, you can lose your ability to purchase comforts. And then what? Then where's your hope? Now, I've, I've had people in, in previous churches, I, I, had, I remember this, this family came in, devastated, crushed, because something happened with their employment and all of their comforts were taken from them. They went from mansions and, and, and cars and all three kids in rep hockey to suddenly their business is crushed and they can't afford everything and they just came in devastated. I'll say something here that maybe might sound crazy to some. If this happens, this could be a gift from God. Because this is the reality that we're all facing, that we're all going to face one day when we die. Everything that we are hoping in, everything we're standing behind will be gone. One day when we're taken, everything that we're looking to on earth for comfort will be gone. This is why Job says this, the hopes of the godless evaporate. They're, they disappear constantly. It's like grasping at the wind. Comfort's a terrible place to look for hope. The second place that I think we all look to for hope, but some more than others, is commendation, meaning this, that we look for our hope and sense of purpose in the affirmation and approval of other people. So when others affirm us, praise us, like us, we feel secure, we feel comforted. When others don't do that, we feel a little hopeless. We, we start to clamor, we start to try to get it, we can do you know, this could be at work, it could be with our spouse, it could be with our friends, it could be on social media. How do you know your hope is in the commendation, the praise of others? Well, when you don't have it, you're crushed. You feel hopeless. When you don't get enough likes online, all you can think about is how to get some more. When you're not sure about how, what your boss thinks about you, your emotional state's in turmoil. When your spouse doesn't look at you all doe-eyed anymore, you start to think, well, maybe I should get another one. Why? Because you're looking for your, your hope there. You know, to, to the singles in the room, when you don't have somebody to date you or somebody trying to date you, your worth and your value goes out the window. Why? Because your hope is in commendation of people. Here's the truth. If your hope is in the praise and affirmation of others, your hope will not be very secure. And in fact, seeking the approval of man can probably lead you um, on a path away from Christ. Colossians, Paul says this. He says, if I were trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Commendation Approval of people is a path away from Christ. You're either finding your hope in his approval or the approval of others. Commendation, control, the third. Meaning this is that our security and expectation of fulfillment, which is the definition of hope, comes through our ability to manage the world around us. 
Things that we can't control make us feel insecure and scared, and so we try to enact control on everything around us, and we believe that if we could control every single thing, we'll feel okay. This is hurting as I'm talking. So we seek to control what happens at work, people's reactions, how our spouse responds, how our children act, how quick we get out the door, how long the road trip takes, whether or not we accomplish everything on our list that week. When things go the way we planned, we're fine. When they don't, things are not fine. It is not well with our soul. Anyone, this is you. Anyone here, your spouse should have their hand up right now. Look at what James says. Come now, you who say, you control freaks. Today or tomorrow, we'll go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. You don't know what you tomorrow will bring. What's your life? You're a mist that appears for a little time then vanishes. Come now, who, you who think you can control everything. Finding your hope and your ability to control things. Don't you realize what a fleeting mist your life is and what a terrible sovereign you are. If your hope is in your ability to control things, you don't have hope. Most of us here, we're a phone call away from having everything that we are hoping in crushed. We're, we're a couple percentage points away from everything we own and everything we've leveraged off the equity in our home being taken from us. We're a visit to the doctor away from some diagnosis that changes the course of our entire lives. It doesn't matter how much you know, kale and blueberries you've been eating, you're gonna die. If your hope is in comfort, commendation, or control, you don't have hope. And some here this morning, you know this, you've come in and some of these things have been giving way. You're feeling crushed because your comforts are failing you. Your ability to control everything is, is being taken away. You're growing tired of trying to project this confidence that everything's okay when you're around people. But when you get back in the car, when you get home, when you look at your bank statement, you look in the mirror, it's all falling apart and you know it on the inside. If you're willing to be honest, the things you're hoping in are failing you. And if they haven't already, if you're willing to be honest and actually look at things, they're going to. This first week of Advent, we are celebrating the Advent of hope, the arrival of hope, because the Advent of Jesus, God becoming human, with it is when we actually find the Advent of hope for humanity, the arrival of hope for humanity. If you have your Bibles open still, it's been a long time coming. Jeremiah 17, if you flip there with me. Jeremiah 17, uh, let's read verse 5. It says this, thus says the Lord, cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He's like a shrub in the desert. He shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places in the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. Here's what he's saying. Where we place our hope matters. If what we hope in can't support our expectations, we experience anxiety, anger, frustration, sadness. Why? Because we're like this shrub planted in a desert, 
desert, trying to find nourishment in a place where there is none, trying to find water in a place where there is none. Rainforests don't grow in the desert. Why? Because there's no water there. Likewise, hope doesn't grow in the shallow soil of comfort, commendation, or control. It needs something more substantial. If you want to have hope, your life and your hope needs to be rooted in something different. Your expectation of fulfillment, again, that definition of hope, it needs to be supported by something more substantial. Verse 7, blessed, to set a contrast up here, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He's like a tree planted by water that sends its roots by the stream. It doesn't fear when the heat comes, for its leaves remain green. It's not anxious in a year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. He's contrasting the different places that we root ourselves looking for nourishment. The soils we try to grow the fruit of hope from. One is a shallow, fleeting soil. The other is described as a deep soil that roots can go down deep in, that stretches out to a source of water. And he says that those who are, are, are planted there, and there's some allusions to Psalm 1, if you know it, that those who are anchored there will not wither when, when these storms come, when these lesser sources of hope give way. Why? Because our hope's in something deeper. If you drop down to verse 13, we read this, O Lord, and that word, if you've been with us in Genesis, uh, it's all caps in your Bible, which is the personal name of God. We went through that in, in, in earlier in the Genesis series, but that's what's being referred to here. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth, for they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. O Lord, you are the hope of Israel. All those who are looking for hope in something different will be put to shame, but those who are looking for their hope in him, the Lord, the hope of Israel, they will never be put to shame. The psalmist picks up on this. He says, and now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Isaiah picks up the same theme. He says, I will wait for the Lord. I will put my hope in him. Who is him? That's the coming Christ. That's Jesus. He's talking about Jesus, the prophesied Messiah, even before he was born. He said, my hope is that you are sending the Messiah who will come undo this all, who will give us something sure. He will come and redeem us from the curse. He will undo the, the curse of Satan, sin, and death. He will come and defeat sin so that we can be redeemed. I will put my hope in him. My hope is in you. Why is Jesus a place, a better place to put your hope than comfort and control and commendation? I'll give you three reasons. One, he shows us that God is engaged in the world. This verse I just read in Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus was written. Actually, a little earlier in Isaiah, in Isaiah 7, um, we read there that Jesus is going to be named Emmanuel, which means God with us. And it's this scandalous truth about Jesus that he, he's not just some Middle Eastern hippie dude in a dress wandering around in the Galilean countryside. He's God in flesh who came down to do what only God could do, stand in our place, 
take the consequences for the sins of the whole world, offer us a right standing that none of us had access to or were worthy of because of who he was, God in the flesh. The birth of Jesus reminds us God is involved in this world and that he came to save sinners, to give hope to the hopeless. And church, that's worth celebrating. Whatever you are facing, the advent of Jesus reminds you that you are not in it alone, that God has become flesh. God dwells with his people. Second reason Jesus is a better place to put our hope is that Jesus evidences God's plan of redemption. In John, we read this. Jesus, or God did not send his son Jesus into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Before Christ, no one had any hope. And and we were all dead in our trespasses, but in Christ, we have access to forgiveness and a new right standing. He came to redeem sinners, to take things that were pagan by their very nature, unholy, and make them holy, to take things that have been dedicated to the worship of lesser things and transform them into people who would be dedicated to the worship of the one true God, to to take people who lived for their own glory and instead repurpose them for his own glory. A third reason that Jesus is at a better place to find our hope is that he proves God's promises are true. We just finished, again, our, our series in Genesis, and at the very beginning, we saw him make God make a promise to Adam and Eve. He promised that he would send a redeemer. And then the 926 chapters after that that take place before the birth of Christ It's all just stories of people looking forward in hope to one day God sending this Messiah. And then we see in the advent of Christ that God delivers on his promises. Jesus shows us God's plan of redemption. And Jesus reminds us that God's engaged in his creation. And church, we need to hear this. Advent is not just the celebration that 2,000 some odd years ago Jesus came. Advent is the reminder that he's going to come again. It's not just the proof that God's promise came true before, but it's the assurance that they will prove true again. He's coming again. He's redeemed us from Satan's sin and death. And indeed, he says he's redeeming all things, and one day he's going to come and rule and reign on the earth again. Satan's sin and death will be done away with. We will dwell on the earth forever without any sin. That's a glorious truth. Psalmist, the psalmist in Psalm 25 says, no one who hopes in you will ever be put to shame. And so if you're here and you're a Christian, take hope. Take hope. Though the lesser things that we all turn to for hope will fade and fail us, he never will. His promises prove true. His plan for us will prosper. His hold on us will not fail. If you are here and you're not a Christian, and perhaps the things you've been seeking hope in have been failing, and it just experientially, you can feel that in yourself. Could I suggest perhaps God is trying to show you what a fleeting place your hope is anchored in, and that what you're experiencing is not his punishment on you, It's his loving call for you to anchor your hope in something better. And and maybe you're here, you're not feeling that right now. One day you will, because all of these things, comfort, 
affirmation, praise of men, control, they're all going to fail us. And so I want to just plead with you, turn from these lesser things, find your hope in a better promise. The band's going to come up. I'm going to read us one final verse here from Romans 10 up on the screen. We're told that if we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we'll be saved. For with our heart one believes and is justified, but with our mouth one confesses and saved. This verse, the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. That's the promise we have. Church, that's why we need to celebrate like nobody's business this Christmas season. Would you stand with me? Father, we thank you that your promises are true. That your promise to send a Messiah came true. And that in Christ's coming, we have hope. We see the advent of hope. One who is more secure than our situations. One who, is, who holds our hope in a more secure way than our hand ever could. And we just pray that... You would reveal in us, Holy Spirit, search us and show us where these lesser pursuits, these lesser things have become the soil we're growing our hope in. And then would you help us uproot the roots of our lives, anchor them back in the assurance of your promises with the sure and steady hope that we have in Christ. We pray in his great name. Amen.